Most of you know by now, unless you're just brand new to this community, that uh, a month ago or so, I walked around the city of Houston with a video camera uh, asking Houstonians uh, whether the Bible is fact or fiction. And I'm not going to show the video again, but the responses were just all over the place. I think uh, throughout the whole day, we got uh, about 100 or so responses. Most people did not respond. <laughs> um, and uh, for obvious reasons, it was a little weird. Uh, but uh, I'd say it broke down to about 60-40, fact to fiction. I think we would have had a lot more fiction, uh, but the people that think it's fiction were worried I was going to come back at them with uh, a speech, you know, like a conversion stump speech, you know, or whatever, uh, sermon, uh, and a hard sell, uh, which I wasn't going to do. Uh, but I think that's kind of where Houstonians broke down on that. But, but really what it was was a trick question, right? Everybody knows asking the Bible, asking whether the Bible is fact or fiction uh, is a trick question um, because there's no good answer. Uh, to, to that question. Either way that you fall, you're going to kind of be vulnerable in what you're saying. And so, uh, fact, uh, if you say it's fact, then you're saying that the Bible is a thing that is indisputably the case. That's the definition of fact. If you say that it's fiction, then you're saying that the Bible is an in invention or fabrication as opposed to fact. And so, if you say the Bible is fact, you're vulnerable on multiple fronts. Anytime the Bible claims something uh, that can't be verified or something that is disputable like a talking snake or a boat with every kind of animal on it or a seven-headed dragon, um, you know, chasing a pregnant woman. Uh, like that stuff puts you in a little bit of a tough place, uh, you know, when your argument that the Bible is fact. But if you say the Bible's fiction, you're almost more vulnerable because it shows your ignorance. You don't really understand what the Bible even is because the Bible is clearly uh, biographical throughout most of it, talking about real historical figures that actually existed, telling real stories about things that actually happened. Not all of it, but a lot of the Bible is that. 21 of the 66 books are correspondence, mail. They are letters that were written from real people to real people that we happen to to capture, and every time you read them, you're committing a federal crime, I think, because you're reading someone else's mail, but that's 21 of the 66 books. And so to say that it's fiction is also short-sighted and a little, uh, I don't know, maybe arrogant, definitely um, ignorant. And so either way, it's false. And listen, I don't, uh, I don't blame non-religious people for not knowing what the Bible is. That's not what this is. I'm saying... If anything, if non-religious, non-Christian people don't understand how we value and read our holy book, it's not on them for not knowing what the Bible is. I, I blame Christians more, really, for not knowing what the Bible is not. And talking about the Bible in ways that perpetuate some of the myths that your friends, and maybe even you yourself, have bought into about our relationship to this book. Look, most people think that Christians view the Bible just like other religious groups, you know, Islam, for example, views the Quran. That the book itself is holy. And if you lay a cup of coffee on top of it, or if you step on it, or if you burn it, then we're going to come after you because you've offended us. That's not how we look at this book. This is just, these, just a book, it's words on a page. This is not what's holy to us. It's the story the Bible tells that's holy, but no fire or a cup of coffee can ruin that. And so um, we have to be clear about what the Bible is, what it is not. I'd like to just run through real quick five things that the Bible is not. 
Um, and uh, these are on your, uh, your study guides, or you can just kind of uh, uh, walk through them with me. Um, and, and we're just going to run through these super quick. So first of all, the Bible is not an owner's manual. It's not an owner's manual. There's a lot of like memes and bumper stickers that call the Bible an owner's manual for life. And it's cute, but it's false. Because the Bible is not an owner's manual. I have my, uh, my wife's car uh, owner's manual here, the 2012 Chevrolet. And um, it is a run-of-the-mill owner's manual. What would you expect to find from an owner's manual? You would expect to find what? Structure, table of contents. You'd expect to find clarity. You'd expect to find consistency, right, in terms of the instructions that it gives. But when it comes to the Bible, we don't have that kind of structure. We don't have the table of contents. It's not even chronologically ordered. The stuff that's in the beginning of the Bible was written after some of the stuff that's in the middle of the Bible. And so the structure doesn't line up like a, like a, like a, t- a table of contents would in an owner's manual. But even more than that, the instructions that the Bible gives a lot of the times contradict each other. And I hope the roof doesn't cave in or y'all don't leave the church for me saying that there's times where the Bible contradicts it itself, especially in some of the instructions. Like, think about what the Bible says about wisdom, for example, in Proverbs 4, 7. It says, wisdom is supreme, though it costs you all you have, gain understanding. That's clear. Except for the fact that in Ecclesiastes 1, it says, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. Those with the more knowledge you have, the more grief you have. And then in Isaiah, which is also quoted in the New Testament, by the way, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the knowledge of the educated will vanish. So what is it? Should we be getting smarter or not? Will it make it, you know, imagine, imagine if you opened, if you bought a new car and you were like wanting to learn more about how this new car works. You're all excited and it had the new car smell and you reach in the glove compartment and you grab this book, which I don't even think they make these anymore, but just work with me here. I think it's all online now, but just work with me here. And you open the thing and it says, Always, always, always drive the speed limit. You must always, no matter what, drive the speed limit. And then you flip to the middle of the owner's manual and it says, caution, driving the speed limit will make you very sad. (laughs) And then you turn to the end of the owner's manual and it says, caution again, God will destroy anyone who drives the speed limit. You would probably call the manufacturer and say, I, don't, I, I think I got the wrong thing. I don't think this is my owner's manual, right? Because that's not a very good owner's manual. If you think of the Bible as an owner's manual with all these clear, concise instructions for holy living, you will be left longing and confused. The Bible is not an owner's manual. If it is, it's not a very good one. Second thing the Bible is not is this cute acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Another bumper sticker, uh, another favorite of uh, some Christian radio stations, things like that. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Acronyms are helpful um, because they help us remember things and it's good whenever the things they help us remember are true. This is not true. There's really nothing true about about that statement and I could break, I could spend a whole sermon breaking down this whole word by word. But look, there's nothing basic about the Bible. It's complex. The, base, the, the Bible is, is, is often confounding. Uh, and it's not all about instructions either, is it? I mean, there are instructions in the Bible, right? We call them commandments, the law. We call them uh, rules and regulations. 
All the rules, regulations, commandments, and laws put together in the Bible make up about 3% of the Bible, the whole Bible. Do you think your non-Christian friends know that? That rules and regulations make up 3% of the whole Bible? It's not basic. It's not instructions uh, for, uh, before leaving earth either. And by the way, the Bible is not a book about what to do before you leave earth. The Bible is a book about how to live as a child of God on the earth and not escape it. Anyway, uh, the third thing the Bible is not, the Bible is not a magic eight ball. This is why I've been carrying this around all day. Some of you were looking at me funny when I had it in the back. Um, and uh, I think you realized, you saw me shaking it. I was like asking it questions about my sermon, you know. Um, y'all remember the magic eight ball and how it works? You ask it a random question that's on your mind and it gives you an answer. And uh, Somebody want to give me a question that's on your mind today? Anything you came to church asking or wondering about? Anything? Volunteer? How long is this going to last? Thank you, preacher. That's a preacher friend over there. How long is this going to last? Thank you, Bruce. Uh, let's see. Uh, my reply is no, so shut up. Here. <laughs> Here, Bruce. There you go. Good catch. All right. Bruce gets a magic ape. If you got questions, he's your guy after the service, okay? Um, sometimes we... I made him drop everything. Sometimes we, <laughs> we treat the Bible that way, don't we? Maybe not you, but people do, right? Uh, we uh, have a problem, we have a question, and we go to the Bible, and we say, well, should I break up with this girl? Should I quit my job and go be a missionary? Should I drop out of school or whatever, you know? And we flip through the pages, and we come across the craziest, you know, non-helpful things. Like, uh, you know, uh, a nagging wife is more annoying than dripping water in a rainstorm which is actually in the Bible. <laughs> That's a truly biblical verse. Trying to stop her, trying to stop her is like trying to stop the wind. <laughs> That's in Proverbs, husbands. You can use that at your discretion later. So, uh, further evidence, the Bible is written by men. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, uh, it's not always uh, helpful to look at the Bible as a magic eight ball. The fourth thing the Bible is not, the Bible is not a book of doctrine. And this is going to make a few people upset, but um, let's be friends. Because um, when I say the Bible is not a book of doctrine, I'm not saying we don't get our doctrines from the Bible. All good Christian doctrine is based in Scripture. But the Bible's not written to be understood as a doct doctrine, you know, textbook, a textbook of theology. You're not going to go to the Bible and find a very clear, concise explanation of some of our most complex uh, doctrines as Christians, like we believe in the, tr the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Try to find in this book a very clear and concise explanation, step by step, of the Holy Trinity, or of the atonement, what happened at the cross, or uh, a really clear understanding of why we say Jesus is fully human and fully divine. You can find stuff in here, but uh, it's not clearly lined out like it would be in a theology uh, textbook or in a doctrinal textbook. And so the Bible uh, supports doctrine, but the Bible itself was not written to be a book of doctrines. Okay. Finally, in fifth, uh, the uh, Bible is not a science textbook, scientific textbook. Uh, this is very simple. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the Bible was not written to be in competition with science. The Bible was not written to be an enemy of science. The Bible was not written to be uh, an alternative to science. If you dismiss scientific advancements 
as false because they present a threat to your understanding of the Bible, that is not on the Bible. That's on you. That's on your, uh, your, your lacking understanding about how to read and interpret this book. It's, it's on you to understand that this book was not written to be in competition with science. And once you learn to read this book well, whenever science makes, uh, makes advancements, you will usually find yourself uh, celebrating those advancements, rejoicing in those, welcoming those, because they don't present a threat to your understanding of Scripture, because the Bible is not meant to be a science uh, textbook. So uh, those are the five things I wanted to say that the Bible is not. You may add your own and your own discussions uh, to that list. Um, but I don't want to end with the negativity. I want to I move to some positive stuff and talk about what the Bible is. And this is really important uh, ground that we're about to cover. And so uh, dial in with me here and let's get through these five things the Bible is. The first thing I want to say the Bible is, is a work of impressionist art. I am biased toward impressionism. Whenever I go to a new museum, the Impressionist section is the first one I look for. I could go and spend hours looking at the works of the Impressionists. The Impressionist Museum in Paris is on my bucket list because I am taken by the form that the Impressionists uh, take in their, in their work. I could stand there for hours, literally. And, uh, and, and what is so striking to me about what an impressionist does is that once their work is complete, you can stand within a few inches of it and what you see makes no sense. When you focus on a little part of it, it doesn't make any sense, it's indecipherable, it's impossible to know what in the world this artist was thinking, it looks like something my four-year-old could do, you know, that kind of stuff. And yet, when you take a few steps back, this masterpiece is revealed. And you realize that that one part that was so problematic and indecipherable and messy was part of this greater whole. And for me, the Bible works a lot like that. Now, there are parts of the Bible when I'm looking up close that are really tough for me to digest, really tough for me to understand. There are parts of the Bible that I wish were not there. There are parts of the Bible, verses in the Bible that seem messy and indecipherable. And if I just focus on those, then the mess and the, 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 the problem is all I have. But if I take a few steps back and I allow myself to take in the whole arc of the story the Bible is telling, I can begin to see how that one problematic brushstroke was part of a much greater whole, that there is this greater epic being told, this story that puts you know, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Game of Thrones to shame. There, there, there is this wonderful light and darkness struggle, this, this battle between life and death, this, this, uh, this war between love and hate going on in this story that is so compelling and so striking that it is uh, irresistible to me. The Bible is a work of impressionist art. The second thing I think is helpful to use when thinking about the Bible is that the Bible is simple and foolish. And again, before you get up and leave, let me explain. I am not the first or best pastor to ever use this phrase. I stole this from another pretty good theologian named Martin Luther, who uh, said, a few hundred years ago with the Bible, God lays his wisdom before you in such foolish and simple guise in order that he may quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Don't let that last line get lost on you. Don't glaze over here. The last line is very important. Here you find the swaddling clothes and the manger, the feeding trough in which the Christ child lies. And so what he's saying here is that 
that the simplicity of the story, that the, the, the idea that Almighty God would come to earth in the form of a defenseless baby to save the world is on purpose. It's not an accident. It's intentional because, uh, because in this complicated world, we need something simple to cling to. And we are simple-minded folk, and we need something simple that makes sense of the world. And so what better way to come to us than in the form of a baby? A baby is something that we've all been. A baby is something that we've all held. If he had come as a conquering war hero or a king on a white horse, none of us would be able to relate. But he comes in such simplicity that it's almost foolish. And you have to wonder if the mess of the Bible is there on purpose. When I went through my agnostic season, where I thought I was an atheist, one of my problems with the Bible was the internal disconnect and the contradictions within the Bible. But I will tell you, it was the same contradictions in the Bible that in some way brought me back to faith. Because if it was some great conspiracy, some lie to pull the wool over our eyes and make fools of us all, they would have whitewashed this thing. They, someone, as they translated it over the years, would have found a way to clean up the inconsistencies to make sure there's no contradictions and no human mess to be found here. But they left the mess. Why? Because we are a mess. And what better way to reach a mess than tell the story of a mess and a perfect God who willfully enters the mess, your mess and mine, to bring us back to some greater perfection, some greater purpose and help us reprioritize our lives and make sense of the mess we're in. What greater way than a a book that often looks messy. The Bible is foolish and simple. Number four, uh, here, number three, I'm sorry. The Bible is a cultural library. The Bible is a cultural library. As I said last week, I'm not going to rehash this, but the Bible is not one book. It is 66 books written by at least 40 people over a thousand years time in nine different genres. I want to take that further a little bit and talk about genre. Genre is defined as a literary category characterized by similarities in form, style, and subject matter. And so there are nine different genres in this one book. And I have a list of those nine here. There's law and doctrine. There's prophecy. There's history, wisdom, narrative, epistles. Those are letters, the correspondence we talked about. There's gospel. There's apocalyptic literature. And then there's poetry and song. Truthfully, there is a 10th category that came to mind this morning. Uh, there's, uh, there's the genre of erotic literature in the Bible. And so I'm sorry, parents, if that raises weird questions for you on the way home with your kids but I don't know what else to do with Song of Songs. It is what it is. And so uh, it's there. And 10 genres, really, in, in the Bible. And so what this means is, because the Bible is this diverse, uh, many multifaceted uh, collection of books, it means a couple of things. First of all, saying the Bible is fiction would make about as much sense as saying a library is fiction. Nonsensical. You would never say that about a library. But for us Christians, we have to watch it too because if the Bible is a cultural library made up of 10 different genres, then we can't go around saying the Bible says whatever we want to say to win an argument. Whether that's a, hi y'all, hi. <laughs> the lights came on. 
whether that's at uh, you know the uh, Thanksgiving table or whether that's in uh, you know your own Facebook thread or whatever that you're trying to win an argument on Reddit, what have you. You can't go around saying the Bible says da 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 because that would be about as sensical as going around saying the library says da da da. You wouldn't say that. The Bible is a cultural library of the people called by God who are uh, specifically called to follow this man, Jesus. Uh, Fourth, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what this means is we don't believe that God wrote the Bible with his own hand. We don't expect to find a perfect uh, book, a perfect story, because God himself didn't write it. He chose to use at least 40 different people to write it. And the Holy Spirit spoke through them in a way, bringing forth this divine revelation. And and God uses these messy people to tell the story he wants to tell the world. The Holy Spirit inspired them. So uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction. Fifth and final, this is most important, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on this one. The Bible reveals the story of God's love in Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals the story of God's love in Jesus Christ. We Christians believe that everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, and everything in the New Testament points backward to Jesus. And the reason this matters is it informs our reading of the Bible in such a way that not everything in Scripture carries the same amount of authoritative weight. I'm using big words. Not everything in the Bible matters the same amount or carries the same authority. Let me explain. One of our major presidential candidates recently was asked what his or her favorite, I'm going to be fair, what his or her favorite Bible verse is. And he or she thought about it and he or she said, an eye for an eye. Y'all all know who it was now. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put my 501c3 status in danger here if I'm not careful. No, uh, this is not a political thing. I, it just, it struck me that an eye for an eye, out of all the amazing, beautiful, loving things that are in the Bible, what kind of person picks that one verse about vengeance and murder, <laughs> which is basically what that, that passage says, right? The passage says, if somebody takes out your brother, you go take out theirs. And that's your favorite? Anyway, uh, so what's even more fascinating is that the one verse he or she chose was one that Jesus in Matthew chapter five goes out of his way to repudiate. Jesus himself says, I know the Bible says an eye for an eye. But I'm telling y'all, when somebody comes at you and hits you on the face, turn the other cheek too. Because we don't meet evil with evil. We don't defeat darkness with more darkness. We're going to overcome by shining a light in dark places. We're going to overcome by loving when others hate. And so Jesus himself uh, 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 reframes the conversation around uh, what to do when someone attacks you. What this means is that whenever you find something in the Bible that is counter to something Jesus said, when there's something in the Bible that contradicts the character and person of Jesus and what he came to represent, 
that is not binding for us because Jesus is the interpretive lens through which we view the rest of Scripture. I hope that clears up some stuff for y'all because listen, think about the most problematic parts of the Bible. Think about the deepest questions some of your friends have about this book. They say it's judgmental. They say it's anti-women. They say it's pro-violence. They say it's outdated. They say it's anti-drinking. They say it's anti-gay. And when you're standing up close to it, you can find one or two brush strokes of evidence pointing to all of those things. But when you take a step back and see the whole arc of the story with Jesus at the center, you realize that Jesus was not judgmental. Jesus was someone who empowered and welcomed women in leadership capacities. Jesus was not anti-drinking. He was drinking wine in like half of the Gospels. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus never turned anyone away for any of the reasons we do today. And so we read the Bible through that lens. And the Bible makes sense through that lens. Jesus is at the center. The question then is how did Jesus interpret the Bible? This is very easy. He said it himself in Matthew chapter 22. You can open your Bibles. Matthew's the first gospel if you want to. Matthew chapter 22, or it's going to be on your study guides as well. That's why we turned the lights on so y'all could read your own Bibles and stuff. I asked for that. It's just about 17 minutes late. I love you, Gio. All right. So here we go. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets. Now the law and the prophets was all of the Bible in Jesus's day. It all hangs on these two commandments. The whole Bible hangs on the commandment to love God and love your neighbor. Today's question uh, that I really wanted to approach was, uh, is the Bible true? Not just is the Bible fact, but is the Bible true? And I hope you can hear how those are two different questions. Recently, I uh, made the unfortunate decision to watch The Wolf of Wall Street. You ever, uh, ever seen this movie? My soul is still in recovery. My eyes still bleed when I think about it. Everything that I saw. It was like some screenwriters got together and said, how can we champion every conceivable human sin in one movie? How can we throw it all together, you know, illicit drug use and domestic violence and uh, adultery and a little more adultery and, uh, and then, you know, some more greed and lust and, uh, and language and, 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 and drugs again. And Jonah Hill naked, I wouldn't want to forget about that. That was also uh, an abomination unto the Lord. And after watching that movie, I really felt like there was no way God would ever forgive me which is saying a lot because I watch uh, Game of Thrones and I saw Fifty Shades of Grey in the theater. Uh, 
Y'all are, that's what sends you over the edge? <laughs> After everything I've told you. What was worse was that our church's advertisement was on right before it, in the movie theater. <laughs> if you really want to see that through, your tithing dollars. <laughs> Never mind, let's not even think about it. I don't want to think about it. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not one who's like puritanical about this stuff, but uh, what really got me was at the end of this movie, when before the credits rolled, there were five words on the screen that said, based on a true story. I was okay until that moment. I kind of knew it was, you know, some actual event, but I didn't know how true it was. They started showing pictures of this Jordan Belfort guy who uh, robbed innocent widows who uh, beat his wife and cheated on both of his wives, this guy who lived for the love of money, this guy who uh, did a ton of drugs, who ruined a bunch of innocent lives, all without facing any real consequences. He's never faced any real uh, you know, uh, um, jail time to speak of. He's out and he's free and all that stuff. And it just struck me in that moment that this story may be historical, this story may be factual, but this is not a true story. There is nothing true about a story of a man like this who gets away with what he gets away with and faces no consequences for hurting so many people. That is not a true story. Compare that with the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. Compare that with a story Jesus told about a man who walked down the road and was attacked by thugs. He was beaten and bloodied, stripped naked, and left for dead in the ditch. And he lay there unconscious. And a few minutes later, this preacher walked by on his way to church. And the preacher saw the man laying there, naked, bloody, beaten, unconscious. And he looked around to see if anyone was watching, because if anyone was watching... He would do what preachers are supposed to do, but no one was watching, and so he whispered, I'll be praying for you, and he went on to church. A few minutes later, a politician walked by. A politician looked around to see if there was any press watching, because this would be a good photo op, helping someone in need, but there was no press, no one watching, and dead guys, they, they don't vote, so he kept on walking. And then Jesus said, the least likely person to do anything good comes by. He says, the person you would expect the least from comes by. And for these, for these listeners that Jesus is talking to, it was the Samaritans. A Samaritan walks by. Samaritans represented everything that was wrong about society. Samaritans were criminals. They were thugs. They were half-breeds. That's what they were called by Jesus' listeners. They were the problem. I want you to really think about and be honest with yourself right now about who that person would be if Jesus was telling the story to you. Because we all have our bias. We all have our own tendencies toward even racism. Who would the person be that's least likely to do something good? Who's the person that represents everything that is wrong with society? Who would the Samaritan be for you? When you hear Jesus tell this story, you should ask that question. Who would it be? Who do you expect the least from? Aggies? 
Is that a hiss? <laughs> Person that prefers cats over dogs? A guy that drives a Hummer? I expect very little <laughs> from guys in Hummers. A felon? An inmate? An illegal? A thief? A sex offender? A radical Muslim? A young black man with his pants below his waist? An angry look on his face? We've all got our biases. We all have our tendencies, and we've all decided quietly who the bad guys are. Jesus said after the preacher and the politician left the man lying there, Samaritan passed by and saw him there with no good reason to stop and help his enemy, a perfect stranger. He stopped and he poured oil and wine on his wounds to disinfect them and then he bandaged them and then he picked up the man's naked body from the side of the road and he put him on his own donkey and then he walked the donkey to the next town miles down the road and he paid for a hotel room and he put the man up in a hotel room and stayed with him the whole night and he nursed him back to health and then the next morning he got up and told the innkeeper, to let the man stay and convalesce as long as he needed to, to heal and to send him the bill, he would be picking up the tab. And Jesus asked his listeners which of the three men was a neighbor to the beaten man. And they all said, the one that had mercy on him. And then Jesus says, yeah, go and do the same thing. Even to Samaritans. And then he says, by doing the same thing and being someone who shows mercy, you will never know death. Death will never have its way with you. You will live in eternity if you know mercy in this life. It is foolish, it is simple, it is true. But is the Good Samaritan a true story? Jesus isn't reporting history here. He's not telling about this thing he saw happen one time. It's Made up, I guess. But is it true? Is it true that sometimes religion and politics get in the way of us doing the will of God? Is it true that our suspicions of each other across racial lines and ethnic lines and national lines and religious lines are a lie straight from the mouth of the devil to divide and conquer us? Is it true? Is it true that being a child of God is as simple and foolish as stopping when a stranger is in pain and needs help? Yeah, I think Jesus said that's a true story. Truer than the wolf of Wall Street. Truer than a history book. Truer than some of the stories we've been telling ourselves. Like all that matters is how much you make or how much you work or how important you are. How many people want to shake your hand when you walk into a room? All that matters is how nice your kids look or how nice your family looks to the outside world. And all that matters is how pretty or handsome or rich your spouse is. Those lies that may be factual, but they are not true. 
Some of you have been saying no to the story Jesus wants to tell you and the story Jesus wants to tell the world through you because you're afraid of relinquishing control. I pray that today is a new day in your life and that you will see at last that the reason this book exists is because God wanted us to know a story, a better story, a story into which you are invited to play your part and to change the world in some way. You don't have to leave your career and go be a missionary in Africa to make a difference. You can stay working where you are, but get ready for Jesus to take control because priorities change. Suddenly your life every day, it matters. And the way that you spend your time and the money that you have, it matters. Take a risk today. Surrender today. Stop running in fear and say yes to Jesus. This story, it's all that matters. Let's go to God in prayer.